Hey beautiful people, welcome to the Hustle Mindset Show. Today on the podcast we have Zen and Zen is a CMO and an advisor in so many different startups. He has worked in growth and marketing and psychology. So I'm really excited to be talking to him. So Zen, how about we start with an introduction? Sure, yeah. Um, so like you said, I'm kind of an uh, advisor and uh, part-time CMO to a few companies. Started off my career uh, as a marketer in tech. Uh, kind of, you know, uh, grew a few different products to a million plus users, um, left that company, started advising and investing. And now, you know, I kind of found a sweet spot where I kind of like having some control over my time, but also like advising and working with companies. And, you know, on the side, I'm assuming you found me through Twitter. I have a pretty uh, big audience on Twitter. So I started tweeting 10 months ago um, and, you know, kind of grown uh, to uh, from zero to like 100K plus in, in, during that period. So, yeah, that's a quick intro to who I am and what I do. Cool. So, uh, just because you mentioned Quitted, uh, what is your aim at Quitted? Great question. So the aim has kind of changed over time. When I first started using Twitter, um, I had I was at my job and my goal was, you know what, um, I'm going to use Twitter, leverage it and try and find a better job. But it grew so fast and it opened up so many opportunities that I hadn't expected at the time. Um, that my whole kind of like career trajectory changed, right? Uh, not only getting inbound for jobs, but people who wanted me to invest in their startups, people who wanted me to consult, um, people who even wanted to kind of, you know, just like be like, hey man, like we're gonna give you money, go start your own company. Um, so from that perspective, it opened up a lot of career opportunities. So now my goal has kind of reoriented. Um, I'm in a bit of a transitional phase where before the goal was to maybe find a job, but now so many great things are happening that I'm sort of like taking a step back just trying to enjoy the process, just tweet whatever I find interesting, connect with my audience, uh, kind of share what I learned with them. Um, and just, you know, just, yeah, at this point, it's just more about having fun and, and connecting with my audience than it is about making any particular career goal out of it. Cool. So this is good. So since you're in marketing, the one question that I really wanted to ask was, what are some unconventional marketing lessons that you've applied successfully? And like most people do not use them, but therefore fund is for you. Great question. Um, unconventional marketing lessons. Hmm. I'd say this is a lot of people when they get into marketing, they can get really into the very tactical stuff or the very strategic stuff. But marketing is a, is a field that's always evolving. So you need to find a balance between the timely and the timeless, right? So the timely is usually the tactical level. So for example, you know, what marketing channel are you going to use? How are you going to create a marketing campaign? What kind of budgets you're going to use? Do you need to hire an influencer? All these different kind of questions, right? So from that perspective, that's like the timely things that you need to learn. But most people get stuck too much in the timely stuff. Uh, I would say there's also a timeless angle. And the timeless angle is all the things that are never going to change in marketing, right? Because the world is going to change. Products are going to change. Technology is going to change. What's not going to change anytime soon is human beings, right? Like we've been pretty much the same for the last few hundred thousand years. So chances are that we're probably going to be very similar for at least the next few hundred or three thousand years um, that are coming up. So from that perspective, it always pays to learn how humans work, which is, you know, AKA psychology. So what do kind of people want? what needs to certain products fulfill and then how do you kind of communicate it to them so i would say most of like you know some of my big ones kind of came from like applying the really tactical stuff so a good example of this is you know i was working at a company and 
we started to use job boards as a hack to kind of get a growth hack to kind of get more people to join our, join our website. That's something no one else was doing at the time. We knew that people are looking for jobs online and we knew that our product was kind of connected to jobs. We started advertising with job boards and we started to get a lot of people coming in. But, you know, on more of like the, the time less side of things, I think that's where, you know, you kind of craft what your message is to the audience. Like what is the main key problem that you're solving for them, right? And surprisingly few marketers seem to understand this. There are basically four or five core needs that you need that you can, you know, kind of solve for someone, right? You're either going to, you know, uh, save them time. You're going to save them money. You're going to make them money. Uh, or, you know, you're going to like be a solution to the pain, like a painkiller or something else. So there are like, you know, maybe a couple of others in there, but those are like the four, five, six big things that you can kind of, you need to kind of understand very deeply to understand how people work and how you kind of pitch your product to them and how you kind of market it. So those are, you know, kind of, I, I don't know if I answered your question exactly, but those are my two cents on like, you know, where, where most of the insights and the kind of counterintuitive stuff came from. Right. So since you mentioned psychology, so what are the top three psychology, psychology ideas that are on the top of your mind right now? Like those you're thinking about. Yeah. What are psychology ideas that are top of mind for me? Interesting. Hmm. I think from from a professional side of things, uh, I think one of the ideas that's become very popular in the last few years, especially in Silicon Valley, is the idea of mimetic desire. And, you know, the kind of uh, core hypothesis of mimetic desire by this professor called Rene Girard is that most of us want things because other people want them, right? So what they say is wanting just like anything else is sort of like a learned attribute. So when you're a kid, um, you know, you learn how to talk, you learn how to walk by looking at your parents and your siblings. When you go to school, you kind of pick, you know, uh, what kind of music you're going to listen to, or what kind of clothes you're going to wear based on, you know, what your friends are doing and what you're seeing on TV. And then, you know, once you kind of go to college or, you know, come into the job market, you're looking to pick careers based on what your friends are doing and what other, you know, successful or famous or whatever kind of folks are doing, right? So desire is, or, or you know, wanting is something that we learn from other people. So it does pay a lot of attention, uh, does pay a lot to kind of pay attention to what it is that people are wanting, especially people that are a role model for others, right? So for example, um, if you see, you know, if you're really into football or soccer and you're seeing someone like Cristiano Ronaldo, or, you know, you're into basketball and you really like uh, LeBron James, uh, and, you know, if you see them wearing Nike shoes, that's like, you know, mimetic desire to play because this is someone that you really idolize. You see them wearing something and you want to be like them. You want to copy this person that you admire. So you end up kind of starting to dress like them, talk like them, do other things like them, so on and so forth. So that's like a very like core kind of insight that I've kind of pro come upon recently. There's a, for people who want an introduction to this subject, there's a, a book called Wanting by Luke Burgess. Was a great intro if, if anyone wants to learn more about how wanting and desire and, and how, how that uh, side of things work. Um, and on the personal side of things in psychology these days, I think a lot about the big questions like meaning and happiness. So the kind of interesting insight that I've stumbled upon lately is, you know, one of life's big questions is like, what is the meaning of life? It's a pretty big question, also pretty cliche, pretty cheesy. Like it's like, you know, this every philosopher starts with like, you know, what is the meaning of life and so on. Um, it's a hard question to answer. And instead of kind of asking the question of like, what is the meaning of life? I've started to kind of switch that question and ask what gives life meaning, right? 
And one of the things that, you know, kind of few different insights, um, there's like some good studies from uh, Harvard, a few other things I kind of wrote about it recently as well. Um, and one of the things I kind of found on that and sorry, give me one second. And one of the things I've kind of found on that end is people beyond, you know, when you kind of meet your basic requirement for making money. So kind of like enough to cover your basic expenses and have a little bit saved. Most of the kind of meaning and happiness that people derive from their life comes from relationships, right? So the more friends you have, uh, the closer you are to your family, um, the more you feel part of your community, the more you feel valued and respected, the more meaning you find in life. Uh, kind of crazy statistic around this is, is loneliness, right? So something I kind of posted recently is that um, about 50 years ago or something, like around 5% of the U.S. population lived alone. But today about, you know, almost 35, 40% of the U.S. population lives alone, right? In the, in the U.K., 75% of doctors said that loneliness was the biggest complaint that they get from patients, right? So 75% of like doctors, the biggest complaint that they're getting is people who are suffering with loneliness, you know, things like depression, anxiety, all these different things that are derivative from loneliness. And another kind of crazy thing that's connected to that notion is before the year 1800, the word loneliness is almost never mentioned in English books, right? You would think like, you know, loneliness has been there forever and we've been kind of suffering with this from, from the beginning of time, but it turns out not at all. Uh, it's only after like the year 1800 where you get an industrialization, you get urbanizations, so people start moving into cities, there's less space in the cities, so you kind of end up in these like apartments, you kind of move away from your families, your friends and so on that the concept of loneliness really starts to kind of show up in books. So on, you know, the kind of personal psychology side of things, I'm finding that there's a lot of value in learning how to build uh, better and, and deeper relationships. Right, got that. So uh, you said learning how to build better and deeper relationships. So what are some habits that have worked for you that have cultivated better relationships? That's a good question. I think most of us, um have good relationships and we have bad relationships and there are times in our life and you know we have better relationships and times where we don't have as many good or strong relationships as we'd want um and i kind of started quizzing why is that so for example one of the like the kind of cliches in in kind of you know, people who study relationships is they call your 30s are um the time of your life where all of your friendships and relationships go to die so suddenly, you know, once you leave college, your, you know, your relationships kind of start getting fewer and fewer. Your friendships start getting fewer and fewer. But once you, know, you kind of hit your 30s, you get married and then, you know, you kind of have kids. You basically don't really make a lot of friends. Like if you have a couple of close friends, awesome. But, you know, it's not going to be anything, anything crazy. Um, and the question is why, though? And it turns out the reason is, is that the biggest predictor of whether you are going to make friends with someone or especially close friends with someone is how much time you spend with them. And this intuitively makes sense if you think about it, because when you're in uh, school or when you're in college, you're surrounded by all these people and you're spending so much time with them, uh, but you know, you don't notice it, right? So you know, in school every day, in and out, you know, you're kind of sitting next to these few guys or girls and you're kind of making friends with them. Similar in college, you're, you know, you're living in dorms, you're going to the same folks to class every day. And you know, day by day, day by day, the more time you spend with each other, the closer you get. 
and there's like specific number around this, right? So for example, in the first, if you want to become, uh, if you want to turn an acquaintance into a friend, you need to spend about 40, 30, 40 hours with them in the first um, four weeks, I think. That's like what the number is. And if you want to turn friend into good friend, uh, you need to spend another certain amount of time with them in the next three months. And if you want to turn a good friend into a best friend, you need to spend a certain amount of time with them over the, again, coming again, three months, right? So time, I find, is like the biggest uh, thing there. And as you grow older, time becomes shorter and shorter, right? So once you start going to your job, not as much time to kind of socialize with people. And once you get married and you have kids, you have even less time to kind of go out and socialize and meet people. So I think one of the tricks there is if you're young, then you definitely want to, you know, make the most of it and spend as much time as you can with people and kind of build this friendship that can hopefully sustain you in your 30s and 40s and so on. And if you're a parent and you don't have as much time, I'm not a parent, so I'm not going to pretend I have, I have a good answer for parents here. But, you know, perhaps one way to kind of do this is, you know, if you can afford it, maybe getting a nanny one day a week so you could kind of go spend some time with your friends or, you know, maybe uh, finding other couples uh, who have kids and spending more time with them so the kids go play with each other and you're spending time with the, with that couple, you know, once or twice a week and so on. So those are, you know, kind of some, you know, when you talk about, you know, what are the specific tactics or habits that you can implement there, those are, you know, the things that I've done. I think one thing that I was very intentional about as well is when I got a job, I had the money to kind of go live by myself, but I did. I lived with two housemates, right? And I'm super close with those two housemates now, right? Because then that friendship, spending that time with that person is kind of built into your routine, right? So then every day, I mean, those two people are because we're living at home together. That's just part of it, right? Like that's just naturally us spending time together, dinner, watching a movie, cleaning the house, doing chores, whatever that is. And you build up that relationship. Um, and then, you know, so for those two or three people that you live with, you're kind of set. And then, you know, obviously, hopefully you find some more time during the week to kind of go hang out with people and, and spend time with people. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of my, I would say, more actionable stuff that I've learned around how to build better relationships. Cool. Got that. And another question regarding mimetic desire. So uh, there's this problem that many uh, startups face that is, they want to crack the virality loop and they want to get in so that they get new users on board yeah. sooner and sooner. So how does mimetic desire apply there apart from influencer marketing? Interesting. Hmm. I need to think about this a little bit. I haven't worked a lot in the virality side of things, even though I have kind of studied quite a bit of it. My kind of instant reaction is, um, is when you figure out something that's really cool or you think is going to be really valuable for someone, you have an instinct that you want to share it with them, right? Because that in some way is, you know, um, makes you look cool in perhaps some or makes you look helpful um, and also helps you kind of build that relationship with that person. So a good way that a lot of companies have done this is they've done like limited invites in the beginning, right? So for example, Clubhouse, if you remember a couple of years back, big deal. So one of the things that they did is um, every person who got invited could only invite two or five other people. So there's a limited amount of invites. So they've made it scarce, right? So your friend is on Clubhouse and they're saying awesome things about it. And there's all this buzz on media and Twitter and all these places. And you want to be part of this, like you want to see what this is all about. You want to be, you want to join your friends. You want to be part of the cool kids, right? You want to join this crowd. Um, so that's an example of like how uh, a virality loop has been driven or a referral loop, referral loop has been driven in startups. 
I think on the more kind of, you know, traditional side of things, a good example of this is Abercrombie, right? So if you, if you ever been to an Abercrombie fit store, especially in Europe and North America, especially North America, uh, when you go in back in the day, not anymore, like you find these like really jacked shirtless guys with six packs who are just walking around the store, right? So what Abercrombie was doing is, is they were communicating to everyone that this is what the really cool kids were. Like they were Abercrombie, right? They were like stirring that desire in young people who came to these stores. All their advertising was also very, you know, um, hypersexualized, let's say, right? So all of their like models were like really good looking, like skinny models or jack models, or, you know, that's, that's the kind of image that they really put out there. There's a great Netflix documentary that kind of came out on the subject as well in the last couple of months. So that's, you know, perhaps another way that you can think about building in virality uh, or using mimetic desire is when someone is wearing like this Abercrombie and Fish t-shirt, they already know that this is what the cool kids are supposed to wear because the company has spent a lot of time and effort into making sure that any advertisement or any kind of in-store experience is, you know, this epitome of cool, is the height of coolness. So those are, you know, uh, both on the on the digital side with, you know, scarce invites and then on the physical side with um, kind of models in stores and so on is, is where I've seen mimetic desire being used most potently. Right, got that. And since you talked about being cool, so where does psychology apply when you're trying to be cool as an adult? Like, where does psychology and having the ability to speak with people fit in there? Oh, so let me get, you're asking me how does psychology fit in with being cool? Yeah. Ah, interesting question. I think this also in some ways fits into the mimetic desire. I want to, I don't want to talk too much about mimetic desire because then it's going to sound like I'm using this to explain everything that happens in the world. Um, but I think it is like super relevant here. Uh, so the funny thing is, is even though people like to copy other people, especially other people who are cool or high status or successful or super athletic, the people that we tend to kind of want to copy the most are originals. They're not copying anyone, right? So if you look at Steve Jobs, for example, I think he's, you know, a role model that a lot of entrepreneurs are trying to kind of copy in Silicon Valley. If you look at him, who is he trying to copy? No one really. Like he's trying to be extremely original. He's not trying to copy anyone. Um, if you try to look at, um, you know, again, I gave the example of sport, right? So like Serena Williams, who's she trying to be like? She's pretty unique in what she does. Like, like she's like an absolute performance machine, right? Like she's she has her own way figured out. The way that she plays, it's it's you know pretty unique. She's she's awesome, but she's not trying to be like anyone else. Um, if you look again, you know, I gave the example of of Ronaldo. I mean, he's not trying to be like anyone else. Uh, you know, I mean. You know, both of us, both of us are, you know, uh, South Asian origin. Let's look at cricket, right? Let's look at someone like uh, in India, you can look at someone like MS Dhoni, right? Who played like Dhoni when Dhoni came on stage, right? Like playing those helicopter shots and all these different things. No, no one really, I don't remember anyone kind of playing, playing the way that he played. Uh, so I think the way to be cool is not to kind of copy what other cool people are doing because if you copy, you will never be as cool as someone else. But if you figure out your own way to kind of be cool, be confident in it, that does that kind of rub off on people um, in some ways. I also want to be careful and say, you know, uh, being cool is overrated. I think being cool is something that matters a lot when you're in high school or college. But being cool isn't something that really matters all that much when you kind of come into adult life. I think in adult life, 
being nice goes a much longer way than being cool. So I just want to kind of caveat that. But since you're asked, you asked a question about how to be more cool, those are kind of my, my two cents on how to be more cool. Cool. Got that. Got that. And so I looked you up and I wanted to ask, how did you move your career from an intern at Nestle to handling full-fetched project growth and then becoming an advisor? So how did that journey pan out for you? Yeah, so initially when I came out of college, um, I, you know, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I just did what everyone else was doing, which is kind of go work for a big corporation, climb the corporate ladder, kind of do that sort of thing. And that's what I ended up in. And, you know, I kind of did audit for a little bit at KPMG. Then I did, you know, sales for a little bit at Neste. And I, frankly speaking, like they're great companies, great people, but I just like freaking hated it. Um, there's just, you know, I didn't, you know, waking up every day, polishing my shoes, putting a tie and suit on, going to work, uh, you know, never questioning anything, waiting years for a promotion, even, you're, even if you're doing, you know, better work than some of your seniors. It just didn't add up in my head, right? And I'm just extremely lucky that I'm born in a time where there was an alternative, which is tech startups, right? Uh, maybe if I was uh, born uh, 20 years before when I was, I might not have had that choice. Maybe it was like big corporate or, you know, nothing else for me. Um, so I was pretty lucky. I had some friends who kind of gone into startups. I'd heard really good things. So essentially what I did is I had enough money saved up at that point where I could kind of, you know, afford to kind of take a chance, move to the U.S. or Canada rent out an Airbnb, kind of look for a job. So that's what I did. I had enough money to kind of keep smoothing over for a couple of months. And, you know, worst case scenario, that doesn't work out. I kind of just moved back home, stayed with my friends and look for a new job. So that's what the plan was. So initially, I wanted to move to the States. Uh, that didn't like quite pan out. So I ended up moving to Canada. I kind of just came to Canada in the beginning. I kind of got a couple of jobs that were really all that exciting. But I kind of understood, you know what, like I can't get my dream job literally like a month after landing in Canada. So, you know, a couple of months kind of here and there, did some jobs that weren't really great, but kind of bide my time, um, got introductions to people, reached out on LinkedIn and email and everything. And, you know, one of those emails kind of luckily panned out into uh, a kind of job at the startup that was early stage back then, kind of joined them as a marketer, helped them, you know, kind of scale one channel, then another, then another, kind of, you know, slowly became a manager, then a director, then a VP. Um, and then, you know, as you go along, you kind of learn a lot of things. And I was very fortunate that I got to spend a lot of time with a lot of entrepreneurs during this journey. Um, so that's another kind of, you know, perk of being in a startup is like, if you're working at like a big corporation, you're not going to get exposure to the leadership. You're not going to get any exposure to like the CEO. And a lot of times like the senior management of the CEO aren't the people who kind of built these companies. They're just people who are there now because the original founder has retired or died or, you know, so I think in terms of like, you know, it's great learning in terms of being a startup is not only are you learning how to build a company every day on the job, you kind of get to be around on the entrepreneur who built it, right? So how, you know, how he kind of ideated, how he found the market, how he kind of created a product, how he tested it, how he raised money, how he or she, you know, kind of uh, hired their first employees, um, you know, how she kind of, you know, built in different product features, how she built different functions throughout the company, how she kind of went into hyperscale, all these kind of different questions, you know, that, that don't really get answered while well they're well at a big company. And these are the sort of things, frankly speaking, I don't even think you can kind of just figure out by reading stuff online. Um, because by the time stuff starts to make it online, it's often common knowledge. So you want to be at the edge of things and learn how things are being built at the edge. 
So that's, you know, that's one of the valuable things about being a startup that I kind of picked up. All these things are kind of, you know, uh, I can look back and say that here's the strategy I used, here's the framework I used, so on and so forth, but that would be a complete lie. A lot of this was just coincidental, right? So, but I will say this is like a lot of this just came from a fact that I, number one, follow my curiosity. I did not know what tech was going to be like. I did not know what startups were going to be like, but I knew that I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop reading about it. I couldn't stop learning about it. So I kind of just followed my curiosity and went into it. Um, and then, hmm. Second thing I would just say is like, I didn't really like give up, right? In the sense of like, I, a lot of my kind of friends came out of college and they went to their first job and their first job is miserable. And they're like, you know what? A work is miserable. Life is miserable. Capitalism, slavery, all this kind of, you know, they kind of take on all these different things because their first job is quite crap. And I feel really like, I don't know, I wouldn't say bad for them because they still have it pretty good, but I just feel like a lot of like sympathy in the sense of like, man, like you, your first job was crap and now you've kind of, you know, decided that the rest of your career is going to be crap as well. That's like really like the worst. It's like, you know, showing up to school on the first day and not liking it and being like the rest of like school is just going to be crap. The rest of college is going to be crap. It's like going on like a first date with someone and saying, you know what, I don't think I could ever kind of click with this person. So it's, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's also just like kind of being consistent, keeping at it grinding it out and kind of just testing out new things until they figure it out. I would highly discourage people to kind of keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results, right? So if you're not happy at a job, you know, maybe you want to try a couple of different things, but if it's not working out, sticking at the same job and doing it over and over again, expecting a different outcome is probably not the way to go. What I mean by keeping at it is like, you, you want to try different roles. You want to try different companies. You want to try different industries. And you want to keep trying them until you find something. So I was pretty lucky in the sense of like, I didn't realize that that's what I was doing at the time, but essentially I was just testing out different companies, different roles and so on until I landed in something that I like. I, by the way, never thought that I was going to be in marketing. And if you, before I kind of, you know, came to tech, if you asked me if I ever, if I'm ever going to be in tech, the answer was probably not. I never saw myself being in tech. So the combination of those things that say like being curious and keep testing things until you figure something out. It's good advice for entrepreneurship, but it's also good advice for kind of finding out a career that you love. Right, got that. And you you were a CMO before in a startup. So why did you decide to become a CMO in multiple startups, like as an advisory role, and not yeah. a CMO at a particular startup? Yeah. So for those of you uh, who might not know this, I'm I'm a fractional CMO. So what a fractional CMO does is spends a little bit of time with a startup in a part time capacity to kind of help them figure out their marketing operations and help them figure out their early channels or something. And the reason why I kind of tried to do this is number one is on a personal level. It's just a simple fact that I like having more flexibility over my time, right? In the sense of like, I get to choose how much I want to work and how much I want to work with someone. So for example, um, I work in an hourly way, right? So for example, I bill at a certain dollar amount per hour and I get to choose how many hours I want to work. So at some weeks I want to work 30 hours, awesome. Some weeks I want to work five hours. That's also awesome. Some weeks I want to work 60 hours. That's also awesome. So that lets me optimize for companies and projects that I really want to work on. I'm not just working for the sake of working, which is what ha ends up happening in a full-time company. Because in a full-time company, you're a salaried employee, you're getting X thousand dollars a month and you need to justify that X thousand dollars a month every month by showing up and spending a bunch of time. And a lot of that time, you're just doing things that don't 
really add any value, but you have to do them because you're in this job and that's just what the whole contract is, right? But I think being in this more fractional role um, just kind of helps me be more flexible with what I'm doing and just help me focus more on things that I enjoy and things where I can, I feel like I can create maximum value. So those are, you know, that's kind of what, what the thinking was uh, behind me moving from like more full-time VP marketing or CMO kind of role into more of this like fractional head of marketing thing. Okay, got that. So since you've been a marketer, what are the top four qualities that separate a marketer from others? Like what does that make him reach the top five, top 10% in the field? Good question. I think there's this idea of a, of a T-shaped marketer or a full stack marketer. Uh, and the T is a good metaphor because, you know, at, at the T, you know, at the top, uh, you know, the dash is sort of like, you know, the the breadth. So sort of like the how many white topics are you covering? And then the line of the T, the, the stem of the T is, you know, the depth of it, right? So the way that you can think about it as a marketer, you want to have a good foundation in a few different areas, right? So psychology is number one that I mentioned. I think you want to learn how to write super well. Uh, what you call copywriting. <coughs> you want to be really good at data analysis um, and you want to be really good at running experiments, right? Depending on what kind of marketer you are, you might want to like learn a few other skills. I'm, by the way, specifically talking about marketers and tech startups because that's what my expertise is. And then what you want to do is you want to take one or two things and you want to get really, really, really good at them, right? So for example, let's just say um, I know how to write really good copy I know how to run an experiment. So, you know, I can kind of leverage those skills for maybe creating a landing page, right? So maybe I'm creating a landing page with copywriting, running experiment, and so on, and mixture of psychology. Or maybe I want to write emails, right? Again, I need to have good writing skill, good communicate, run an experiment, measure the data, and, and so on and so forth. So those are, you know, those, those two core kind of things. But then, you know, whatever channel you attach yourself to, or whatever one or two channels you attach yourself to, you want to get really in depth and become an expert in that, right? So build a good foundation, very much like a tree, but you know, an industry where at the top you have all these branches where you know you kind of build like a little bit of knowledge in all these like good subjects, and then leverage them all into like this one big trunk of like this thing that you specialize in. Um, those are you know that's number one. I think number two, the thing that I'll say is, is being extremely results oriented. It's a little bit of a cliche. Of course, you want to be results oriented, but the fact is, is like so much of work is just busy work, right? Is I'm at work, I'm sending emails, I have to show up. Uh, sorry, I'm, I'm attending. I'm I'm answering emails. I'm attending this meeting. I'm showing up to like this project. I'm kind of doing this. I'm kind of doing that. I think for something for you to have a really big win in your career, you need to kind of buckle down and really focus on doing that super, super, super well, better than anyone else has. So, yeah, that's, that's another thing I would say. And to kind of sum it up, I would also say just focus on getting the basics right. I think there are people kind of get too crowded out in like very specific tactics and, you know, here's like 10 steps to becoming a better marketer or here's like 20 skills you need to learn as a marketer. Forget about it. A lot of the basics that you know, which is kind of show up, be consistent, work hard, specialize in one or two things, focus on results. Just focus on those. If you can get the basics right, you're probably going to be in the top 10 to 20% of marketers. Right. So to focus on getting the foundation right and the rest of it will kind of come with time. Right. Right. Got that. So uh, another question, who are your heroes? Like who are those invisible mentors that you look for 
advisory who you read on often? Great question. I don't think I have a lot of people that I kind of look up to or admire or everything. And the reason for that is, is like, if you want to be someone, you can't just pick the good parts. You need to pick the back, bad parts as well, right? So, for example, if you meet someone like Steve Jobs who is super successful, like, of course, you want the good parts of, of um, him being an excellent entrepreneur and presenter or whatever else you want to market or whatever else you want to call it. But then there's the downside to being Steve Jobs as well, right? Which is like huge psychological stress, um, really bad relationships throughout his life, uh, an extremely bad diet that might have contributed to like serious health issues that, you know, caused him to die and all these things. So you really have to ask yourself is like, do I want to be Steve Jobs with the good and the bad? And the answer to that is, is like, I'm just not sure I do. Um, uh, yeah, it, so I think a better kind of like thing is is like, who do I like to learn from? Um, and who am I sort of like influenced by to some degree? Um, and when I think about it, hmm, it's a hard question. I don't, I don't know if I have a clear, clear answer to this question, but I think people whose ideas I found super like influential throughout my life. I think um, I read a book called The History of Western Philosophy by Bertrand Russell when I was pretty young. I think he just opened up like a huge world inside my head that I didn't know that existed before. So I think him, I would like sort of like credit with kind of like, you know, opening my mind up to, to the stuff that I just never even thought could be there. I think that's number one. I think the other one I would say is uh, Charlie Munger, his book, Poor Charlie's Almanac. Excellent book on like, you know, how to think better, how to make better decisions. I think that's like one that I would say has like hugely influenced me. Um, who else can I think of? Who else can I think of? I think those are like the two big ones that I can think of the top of my head. I think there's other people who from time to time have like interesting ideas and I'll engage with them. But those are like the two that I'll say had like consistently high quality ideas that kind of made me think and definitely influenced the way that I kind of make decisions and, and live my life. Right. So got that. One question more. So what would you do in 10 years? And would you consider that that 10 years that you spent, you've really succeeded and you've achieved some degree of success? Hmm. I used to think about this question a lot. Um, the right answer to this question is, is if you want to figure out how you're going to feel in 10 years or where you're going to be in 10 years is just figure out what you're doing today and how you feel today and draw a straight line from that to 10 years from now. Right? So if you're eating like crap, if you're not exercising, uh, you know, you can draw a straight line from it and say, I'm not going to be any healthier 10 years from now. Uh, if you're, you know, not saving money, not investing, uh, you know, you can draw a straight line from it and say, I'm probably not going to be financially stable, right? If you don't feel happy today and if you don't feel successful today, um, you can draw a straight line from it to 10 years from now and you're not going to be any happy or any more successful than you are today. So in a very kind of, you know, um, weird way, is you need to find ways to kind of get that thing that you're looking for 10 years from now today, right? So if you want to build a successful startup 10 years from now, you need to start building that successful startup today. 
if you want to be healthier and if you have want to have like a six pack 10 years from now, you need to like start hitting the gym today. Um, and if you want to be happier with your life, if you're not happy with your life today, unlikely that you're going to be happy with your life 10 years from now. Um, so I would probably say is like, I'm, I'm these days definitely more focused on the short term um, of, of how I feel from day to day. And I'll say like, yeah, I feel reasonably happy. I feel reasonably successful. I feel reasonably financially stable. And I feel like I have a reasonably kind of, you know, good level of like relationships. And it wasn't always this way, but it kind of has this become this way over the last couple of years. So if anyone is, is kind of thinking about, you know, how do I get to someplace 10 years from now? Just think about like, how do we get to that place today? Right. So those are just kind of like my, my parting thoughts on, on that question. Right. This is, this is an interesting view of that. Okay, cool. So I think that I'm done with the questions. If you have anything to ask me or tell me, you can just go ahead with it. No, awesome. Yeah, that was like pretty much so, all kind of words. Yeah. Words no words. Yeah, so, so, so what kind of got you into podcasting? For, in my head, I was expecting you to be, a, be much, much older. Okay, so uh, I, I got into podcasting because I was an introvert and I was looking to improve my communication skills and then also nice. talk more experienced guests and kind of build on experience of others. So that was basically the idea. And then it was like, okay, this podcast seems to be working and meeting interesting people and getting to talk to them. And yeah, so that was it. Yeah, awesome. And I'm assuming you're in school right now? Yeah, in school. Nice, nice. So uh, high school, college, like, what, what grade are you in? Yeah, I'm in grade 12. Nice, nice, nice. Ooh. Sweet, man. That's pretty cool. So what So what are what are your plans for the future? Like, what do you want to do? What do you want to kind of... I mean, you're, I see you're building a Twitter audience. I, I see you're building, uh, doing a podcast, all good things. But like, ever ever thought about what you want to do with this? So I think I want to get an engineering degree and I want to become an entrepreneur. Like I've always thought of it this way from my young, from a young age. I want to become an entrepreneur. I want to become financially stable and I want to build on assets. Yeah. And as the world along with that is a kind of like the intersection wherein I earn enough and I help the world enough and contribute back enough. Those are nice goals to have, man. I feel like you're ahead of a lot of other people out there. Uh, oh, yeah. When it kind of uh, comes to understanding what you want. Um, awesome, man. Thank you for having me on the show, man. And, and best of luck with everything. Thank you. Thanks a lot, everyone, for joining in for the show. And see you in the next episode.